The following content is provided by MIT OpenCourseWare under a Creative Commons license. Additional information about our license and MIT OpenCourseWare in general is available at ocw.mit.edu. Yep. Good. Can you just point in the direction of your teaching assistant who's uh, doing the time logging? Uh, right here. Is there a section? No, there are no sections for a few days. The sections, both the weekly sections and the extra sections, will be on the website. That's your best place to look. If you're if if you have questions after you've looked at the website, then you should contact your teaching fellow. But definitely look at the website. It will be updated daily, um, and your sections will be assigned probably by Thursday or Friday. Okay. Are we? Uh, okay. Welcome back from the break. Uh, as promised, we'll, we're going to discuss the the innards of. Uh, computers that are going to be helping us with computational biology. We have uh, a schematic diagram here illustrating in part we'll have similar schematic diagrams for biological systems or biochemical systems. This is one for transistors. We have uh, these nonlinear transistor elements here with an input voltage, an output voltage, and a control voltage, VDD. And a, and a ground here is this little triangle in the uh, lower left. These transistors are in this circuit here that, that is a, a certainly a higher level description that allows you to uh, put down the, the uh, uh, more detailed description of this voltage uh, 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 curve as a function of time. So time is a horizontal axis here ranging out to 200 nanoseconds and this is all done in a, a program, a, a simulator called SPICE, um, of this complementary metal oxide inverter. And this sort of simulator is one of the things that we'd like, that we will be talking about in biological systems. And it's very useful for designing these circuits. And you can see as the voltage VDD uh, goes up in this uh, straight blue line from zero volts, which is off, to five volts, which is on, you get this almost all or none, but, not, but certainly non-linear response where the output voltage on the vertical axis goes from 5 volts on to 0 volts off. It's basically the opposite. When it's 0, it's 5, and 5 is 0. Um, but in between, you can see there's this gray zone. You want to stay away from this in digital circuitry. You want to stay fully saturated or uh, basically 0 volts. And then this, uh, <coughs> this in- these inverters can be uh, t- wired together an even higher level diagram into what are called registers, which allow you to, to store uh, multi-digit binary numbers. These can then be uh, coupled together so you can take two registers and add digit by digit uh, the contents of those registers. That's called an adder. A- adders and a variety of other higher level electronic components can be put together and then addressed by software called a compiler. Well, how did you get the software in there in the first place? Well, you have to toggle the hardware until it gets into a state where you sort of manually get the transistors to be in the right set of on and off voltages, 5 and 0 volts. 
Once you get the first compiler, you can now work at a much higher level. A compiler is basically something, all this code that I've been showing you so far, the Perl, the Fortran 77, the Mathematics, and so forth, those are all things like print uh, exp of one. Um, that is like compiler. It's code which you can type in. It's almost English. Uh, some of you may say it's not nearly close enough to English. Uh, but it's much closer than dealing with these little voltages. Okay, And once you have one compiler, you can make another one. You can use that pseudo-English to write a more complicated compiler that can deal with an high, even higher level language and then reduce it, then it takes care of the bookkeeping that reduces it down to telling the computer what voltages to put where when. As you go up to still higher ones, we have these high level application programs which might have you know, intense graphics or something like that. Okay, so that you really get uh, a world view that is much more in resonance with our primate visual and auditory senses. Now, this idea of self-compiling and self-assembling uh, is, is very interesting, very self-referential. Many of the things in this course will be. Uh, we have uh, biological components which have this very interesting complementary surfaces that I talked about a couple slides ago, uh, where the two strands of DNA, which are not covalently linked, covalently means that you have these strong bonds along this one ribbon, and connected by a series of stacking interactions where plate, the plates, the sort of planar bases stack up, and they form weak bonds from one strand to the other, um, where the rules I mentioned before, now slightly more realistic symbols here for the GC and AT base pairs rather than just the alphabetics. But this is still symbols. This is not really electron density. We're using letters instead of the electron density of nitrogens, carbons, oxygens, hydrogens. But these hydrogens make this hydrogen bond a weak bond. Um, and the, the surfaces are complementary so that if you try to pair a C with a T, you have the wrong spacing, you have steric clashes, and so on. Um, this uh, process by which one sequence will not make the same sequence right away. Replication does not make an identical sequence. It actually makes a complementary surface. And then one more cycle, and you get back to the original. Just like that example I gave before of the, uh, the trinucleotide going to a hexanucleotide, and then that helps the, the, the second round. This is very analogous, uh, except now these molecules, instead of being six nucleotides long, they can be hundreds of millions of nucleotides long. So... This introductory, uh, this introduction to minimal life, all these life have in common self-assembly, catalysis, replication, mutation, and selection. The monomers, meaning the simple, simple molecules taken from the environment, the environment being defined by some boundary. This could be fairly flexible boundary. It could be a membranous boundary. Uh, it could just be some kind of aggregate. The small simple monomers, these make, combine to make complicated polymers, and then this replication process continues. When we go to more complicated systems, uh, now this is the central dogma. The DNA, the long-term stable storage, is accessed by making ephemeral RNA, which then encodes proteins, and, RNA, and in some systems, RNA can replicate. RNA can be reverse transcribed to DNA. Unfortunately, the AIDS virus is one of them that does this. DNA can replicate itself. 
and certain pathological case, or actually certain cases, I should say, proteins can, uh, can in an autocatalytic cycle, recruit other proteins to their particular state. These are called prions, and they're a uh, basis of mad cow disease and things like that. But again, you're, you've got a boundary for the replication, um, of, and simple structures come in, and complicated structures are generated. When we talk about the polymers, uh, we're, we want to quantitate their amounts and their interactions. Uh, they initiate, elongate, terminate, they fold, they get modified in various ways. In other words, it's not just the simple linear polymers. They get, their position in space is important, and they are either degraded or diluted during the replication process. This gets even a little more complicated when we talk about functional genomics. Uh, here, um, <coughs> we measure the growth rate. We measure the concentration of RNA and proteins. Sometimes their localization is important. Measure that, too. That's called gene expression. And the interactions are important to be part of this measurement process. These measures and models I've been talking about are how we get to uh, defining enough about living systems so we can model. So here's an, another model. This is a Rorschach test, as you might take if you go into a psychologist's office uh, maybe long ago, and they'd say, look at this ink blot. Um, what does it remind you of, you know, bad things your father did, and so forth. Um, here, the Rorschach test is, what does this curve remind you of? I'm giving you some hints. Exponential curve, great. And how do you get, and you know, this is like the stock crisis before dot-com crash. Uh, <laughs> how do you get this? Either, how do you find it in biology for the biologists, or how do you find it mathematically for the rest? Yeah. Human population growth. Yeah, that's a good ex biological example. Maybe, and Malthus and others have said this can't go on forever, but this is not a... A fact is, is uh, uh, it's a pretty solid speculation. So uh, how do you get this? Well, for those of you who prefer to see or expect to see stocks go down as well as up, we've got the, an exponential decay curve in magenta to, to serve as a reflection of the exponential growth curve. These are, these are just e to the kt or e to the minus k, or where k is positive. And this is the world's simplest differential equation y, the y-axis, is a function of time, the horizontal axis, and uh, the small changes in y with small changes in t, time, t, uh, dy dt, that's sort of the slope uh, of the y as it goes up the blue exponential curve, is related to how much y. The more humans there are, the faster the human race replicates, okay? Uh, and it just keeps getting more and more, and that's why it has this exponential curve. This is much steeper than quadratic. And, it, and its origins are way back here. And similarly, the exponential decay, as you might get with radioactive substances, follows a revert, reverse process. And uh, if you integrate this, um, you get a, a very simple integral. It's what we've been talking about. It's e to the kt. So it's an exponential function of time why, say, the human population or your stocks, where E is this number that we highlighted before, about 2.7. If you're interested in half-lives, which sometimes people are, like radioactive decay or half-life of replication of bacteria in a solution, it's a very simple formula that gets you from the rate constant, K, 
this is like a biochemical rate constant, to uh, uh, a half-life. This is growth and decay. So what limits this? Why doesn't it just keep going up? Um, this is a, th what we've been looking at is the lower left-hand corner of this graph in slide 29, where it goes exponentially up from close to zero, not quite. Uh, and eventually it will plateau, or worse yet, it might come down. And what causes it to plateau is exhaustion of resources. And if you get enough accumulation of waste products or enough exhaustion of resources, you can plummet. Um, if you just zoom in on this little part here, one way of analyzing it, very hopefully known to some of you, uh, is that you take the logarithm of y and plot it versus t. So t is linear axis and the, and the vertical axis is logarithmic. Now you get a straight line, at least for the beginning here, and eventually it will plateau the same as this one does. And that's a way of telling that you have a simple exponential. You have e to the t power, or 2 to the t power, or anything to the t power. Simple those are all simple exponentials, and they'll give a, li a, a line when you take the logarithm. Now, what does Mathematica do to help us here? Uh, it, you set up this equation. Instead of saying dy dt, you can say y prime of t. That's just shorthand. It's very commonly used uh, in calculus. y prime of t means the first derivative of t, uh, of y with respect to t, is uh, directly proportional to y. That is to say, your, your slope of the human race expanding is directly proportional to y, the number of humans. Okay, and then you're going to start at time equals zero, we've got one human. Well, that's probably not enough. Well, okay. Maybe a bacteria. Okay. Uh, you have initial conditions. Okay. And then, uh, and so you just say solve it. You tell the computer, so, so everything to the right of this equation is something you can type in to Mathematica, do a differential equation solve of this string that I typed in here, which tells you the initial conditions and the formula. And boom, out comes the out. This, you didn't type this in. Mathematica came up with this, e to the t power. That's pretty cool. Even though it's the world's simplest differential equation, it solved it. Try to do that in your other favorite programming languages, Excel or Fortran or, Perl or Python or whatever, C. Uh, this, is, this is really powerful. Now, this is analytic or sim symbolic or formal. These are various terms you would say for this trick. And as the equations get more and more complicated, this becomes more and more amazing, almost intelligent. Eventually, they get complicated enough that neither humans nor Mathematica can solve them. And so what you do then is you use a, a numerical approximation where you take little steps and, uh, and you... Uh, you, you solve it by uh, numeric approximation. But you set it up the same way. You tell it that the derivative of y with respect to t is proportional to y, or in this case, a, you know, proportionality constant is 1. Same initial conditions, 1 starting bacterium. Uh, but now you tell it what interval you want to do this. You don't want it to have to do these little steps all over all you know, negative to positive infinity for time. You just want to say, I'm just interested in time from 0 to 3 minutes or hours or whatever years. Okay, and then you evaluate it, and you can you can plot this, which uh, appeals to the primate visual system. These plots, and you'll see lots of plots in this course. But now here, y a function of t is this exponential curve. And if we plotted log of y as a function of t with this numerical uh, solver, it would be a straight line. Now I'll give you some where it isn't a straight line. These are all logarithmic on the x, on the y-axis, and they're all linear on the on the uh, 
horizontal axis in all time on the horizontal axis linear time and they're more than simple exponentials they're going up faster rather than going out slower which you know we think human population bacterial population and so forth they'll go up sort of linear on a log plot and then flatten out these things are just going faster and faster what are these things well even though your dot coms didn't work out if you had had a stock portfolio in western european uh, commerce in the year 1000 uh, you'd be in really good shape now in the year 2000. This is not only going exponential, it's going steeper than exponential. And we all hope that this will keep going forever. That the gross domestic product of people in Western Europe and the world will just keep going up. And this is due to technology. And technology keeps reinventing itself. And hopefully it can keep doing that. Here's another example. This is more drilling down to specific technologies that have been on a, on a super exponential or hyper exponential. I don't know quite the right term here is. Uh, for a long time. These are not, these are greater than linear, steeper than linear. These are close to quadratic um, after, um, and so it's an exponent of a quadratic. And these are for transmission rate and pink of data from the Morse code in the 1830s uh, to optical fibers here in the present. And, and then the blue are uh, digital processing from the first census in 1890s to, uh, to modern computers, and this is uh, instructions per second per thousand dollars. Now, this unit, the, the, the little piece of this is integrated circuits that Moore's Law refers to from just the tiny end of this from 1965 onward, refers to integrated circuits. And these will run out of gas pretty soon, everybody tells us. But this curve may not, because it goes beyond it. It, it predates integrated circuits and it will post-date them. Uh, and who knows where this leads, but uh, yeah. What's the R squared? Uh, oh, I'm sorry. We'll get to that at, at the at the end of this lecture. But it's it's a correlation coefficient, which is a, it's a it's t to what extent is there a is there a fit between uh, one curve and another? How well does the calculated curve fit the observed data um, collected? Um, and so uh, these are around 99, which is very good correlation, and better than the linear plot. But of course, you have more adjustable parameters. Okay. Uh, another sign of hopefulness is data are coming in faster. So this is, you know, our life is getting better, uh, our computers are getting faster, and, uh, and data is coming in from the Genome Project. And this little inflection point where it was sort of log linear for a while and then a new log linear. So overall, it's super exponential. And this is for the, the number of base pairs we can get per dollar, starting with transfer RNAs in the uh, late 60s and ending with... Uh, who knows how many human genomes that we will have by the year 2010. I mean, 2010. Now, where does this, all this exponential growth go? Uh, some people think we will be creating computers that are smarter than we are soon. What would this require? Here's a nice back-of-the-envelope example of systems analysis where biology meets computers. Let's analyze our retina. Our retina, all of our retinas are processing right now, hopefully. Uh, and uh, the, uh, Hans Moravec simulated uh, a, a retina for video imaging uh, where he did edge and motion detection. And it required about uh, a billion instructions per second to match the 10 times per second which you're updating the, the retina. The brain is about uh, 100,000 times larger than the retina. And if this scales linearly, which is speculative, then you need a computer that has about 
100 uh, million MIPS, or about 100, uh, 10 to the 14th instructions per second of compute power and a similar number of bytes. Now, that, back in 1998, that was still quite a ways away, but here in 2002, the best supercomputer, and this site keeps track of uh, the top 500 supercomputers, and trust me, your computer is not on that list. Uh, but anyway, the top one is within a factor of 10 of this compute power. Now, it probably the uh, Earth scientists that own this thing will not bother to try to see if it can do ordinary human things, uh, you know, like watching soap operas. But uh, we're in that range. We need to be cognizant of the possibility. Here's another model. I've tried to put it in the same units we've been talking about, this ex exponential growth. Again, we have the rate constant K. We have the Y, the you know, human or bacterial population growing exponentially. Um, and <clears throat> here now we've tried to model the, the case where, yes, as you have a great population size means greater growth until it gets close to the maximum carrying capacity, the 100%, the one uh, the, the maximum it can go. And then it will plateau. So you have uh, uh, it plateauing near one. And this is called the logistic map uh, is the basis of that complexity calculation we talked about earlier. Uh, and here the population size is a function of the rate constant and, uh, and it has both, it gr both grows when y is small. As y scales up, it goes up exponentially, and then finally, as it approaches the maximum of one, it plateaus. However, if you get greedy and you increase your growth rate beyond, say, uh, here it's very, very small, very ungreedy, just 1.01. That's like a 1% interest in your bank account, okay? But you still, you, you, you grow exponentially, um, given enough time. Uh, However, you get greedy and say, I want a 300% return on my investment. Well, then you start getting these little cycles of, of uh, you know, like stock market going up and down. Okay? And if you get really greedy, where you need a 400% improvement each, each cycle, you get chaos, and then you can eventually drop down very close to zero and crash, and, go, and the population can go extinct uh, because it used up its resources or made uh, non-optimal use uh, and made toxic side products. Okay. Graphs. We have uh, directed acyclic graphs as uh, an ex example. Graphs are made up of nodes. You can th uh, think of these here as the nodes are people or organisms. And you start with one bacterium here on the far left-hand side of slide 35, and you have a direction. Uh, you can only go forward in time. So each of these little... So the, the node is uh, the bacterium individual and the, uh, the uh, lines connecting them are edges in, in the graph terminology and they're directed. And they can't go in cycles because you can't have uh, a, a daughter giving rise to a mother. Okay? So this all makes intuitive sense. Um, but you can use these, these kind of graphs for a whole variety of interesting things. You have uh, not just the, the pedigree we talked about, but phylogeny in general, ancient connections between organisms, the biopolymer backbone. You have a simple linear backbone or a branched backbone. This can be represented. Uh, it doesn't, fold, doesn't covalently cross back on itself. 
if you want to know what's near one another in, as, a, as this polymer folds up, like that transfer I showed in the first slides, those contacts are uh, indicated. Um, now you start getting cycles because A can contact B, B, C, D, back to A again. You get cycles in, uh, in a three-dimensional structure. You get cycles in a regulatory network. You can have, in order to maintain homeostasis in your body, A can regulate B, B can regulate C, and back to A again. But it's all direct, it's directed. There are system models that we, will, we and others will study. They have in common, this is slide 37, on the left-hand side, the system models. Uh, and they've been chosen mainly because in the pre-genomic era, it was very hard to get data sets. Certain systems were just technically easier to get large data sets, uh, genetic or biochemical. These include E. coli going toward food and away from toxins. Red blood cell is a nice metabolic system because it doesn't have any polymer synthesis, makes it simpler. Cell division cycle is really key for understanding pathogen replication, cancer. Circadian rhythm is, uh, you know, what, what is a huge number, of possibly many, if not all organisms, uh, have some ryth circadian rhythms uh, that keep their biochemistry optimal and keep us uh, hopefully awake. Uh, right now, anyway, until it's time. Okay, um, plasma DNA replication is an example of single molecule precision, and we'll talk about the DNA single molecules in just a moment. So that's uh, where, we, where we're aiming right now, is from graphs and pedigrees down to the single molecules that allow replication to work. Uh, these are, this replication is achieved by interconnected machines they are somewhat modular. Modular is, a, is also a computer term where you try to put code that works together into a, something that's defined spatially and functionally. So you have these little modules that replicate uh, the, uh, the, nucleic, the DNA, make RNA from it, different module does the protein synthesis. There is some interconnection between these. This will be discussed, these kind of complicated machines that biologists love to simplify and diagrams will be described in more detail um, next week. But the idea is this idea of modules versus extensively coupled networks. Um, this is how we get the replication. The way we analyze the replication um, is somewhere here in the middle uh, where I've uh, had a scale here that goes from high resolution, high, pr uh, uh, very accurate descriptions of physical processes, sort of in the nanometer femtosecond range on the far right-hand side of slide 40, um, to things that are very long time scale, very large scale, sort of the kilometer years that happen in population dynamics, sometimes global population dynamics. This, uh, you should understand that all of these models we'll be talking about are approximations. As we go down this scale, uh, it gets more and more computable uh, uh, per, uh, you, you, to, to compute more and more complicated things but at the cost of greater and greater approximations. Even the molecular mechanics that we use in conjunction with uh, crystallographic diffraction data is, a bit, is, is amazing uh, computational chemistry, but it's a great approximation of quantum mechanics, which in turn approximation of quantum electrodynamics, which itself is an approximation. And all of these things are very hard to compute uh, on any 
even reasonable atomic system, multi-body problem. Um, the big approximation for molecular mechanics is that you have spherical atoms, um, so you don't have the distortion of the dipole that occurs in very useful bonds, such as the hydrogen bonds, in, a, in almost all um, non-bond interactions. That's poorly approximated, but it's the best we have that can be computed right now in most computers and, and even modestly large molecules. Then we now, as we go down, we go to, you can think of it as higher and higher level uh, abstraction, just like high level programming languages. We're now programming chemical systems and thinking about them. Now, instead of dealing with single atoms in molecular mechanics that produce the tRNA structure that I showed you, we now deal with that whole tRNA as a single molecule. But it's still a great depth of uh, precision because each molecule has its own life and you track each one in the computer and that's stochastic simulation. The next higher level beyond that is now we don't deal with single molecules, we deal with populations of molecules where we deal with a concentration as a function of time. The ordinary differential equations that we've already been talking about like that uh, exponential growth curve uh, is one way of dealing with concentration of you know, bacteria as a function of time. That's appropriate. There are other cases where we want to do this optimization. We want to study how close to optimal a system is. One way to study that is with these uh, economic uh, uh, functions, these uh, linear programming, to look at the fluxes. Now we're no longer talking about concentration and time because we're, we're uh, interested in the rate at which things w through which uh, chemicals are flowing through a biological system where any particular chemical uh, concentration is, is at a steady state level. That means you have things going in and things going out, but stuff in the middle is staying the same. That's, the, that's a very useful approximation that's used time and again, even though these are dynamic systems. If you can find them in a pseudo-steady state, you can apply these very powerful uh, computing tools, and then you can do computations that would be very hard to do in these more uh, precise and complete methods. And we'll go through these in much more detail later on. You'll find very interesting connections between the largest scale things we're talking about, where we talk about stochastics of whole organisms in big populations, and the stochastics of single molecules. Okay, we're talking about single molecules as our last topic today. And each of you do single molecule manipulations on a regular basis, and uh, you're your ancestors have been doing it for 10,000 years without a license, without a computer, and uh, they've been doing a pretty good job of it. They've taken this little weed-like thing, Teosinti, and turned it into this corn that would make the 4th of July quite proud. And uh, dogs, who knows what their ancestors look like, but right now they span about uh, three logarithms of uh, mass. And this was all done with the awesome power of single DNA molecule technology uh, crosses, basically. And what happens in each of the cells in your body, if all goes well, is you start out with one chromosome of interest uh, and it divides. And then the cell divides. And that chromosome, we'll forget about all the other chromosomes in there for a moment, that chromosome has a choice of <coughs> when it divides, it can go one each into each of the daughter cells, or both chromosomes can hang out together, since they're all tangled or something, and then one of the daughter cells gets not, doesn't get any copy of that chromosome. Now, that obviously is not a good thing. Even if two copies of the chromosome is 
is okay, if you can tolerate that extra dosage, you certainly can't tolerate the zero chromosomes. Well, what's the chances this will happen? Well, this is really elementary probability. I'm going to ease you into it. Is that uh, it's about 50-50 chance. These are all. The, this is an exhaustive list of the possibilities, and uh, and they have uh, uh, about 50% of them are, have the wrong dosage. Well, what if we have a more realistic situation? Human cells with 46 chromosomes. What's the, what are the odds that they'll all be right? Uh, that we'll get exactly one of each. We have 23 chromosomes from mom and 23 from pop. What's the odds that this is going to work out? Well, we're going to take a couple of slides to get to that answer. We have, uh, uh, but first to motivate you, this is extremely important in, in a healthcare sense. It's the most common form of mutation. Happens all the time, unfortunately. At every chromosome dupli uh, duplication or loss is, is a is a big change in uh, uh, the human state. And the mildest of all of the additions or subtractions of a chromosome, here you just have three copies of chromosome 21, everything else normal. So 1.5 dosage of this, one of the smallest human chromosomes has an enormous impact. Many, most of you have seen someone with Down syndrome, um, which is severe mental retardation and, uh, and heart defects and various other organs. Yeah, question. This is a good. This is a good point. This is uh, uh, what I'm. am setting us up for exactly that conclusion. It cannot be random. Single molecules are subject to stochastics, um, and so to overcome that stochastic process, this should be random. You have to have machines that involve multiple molecules, uh, because only through multiple molecules can you get the statistics to overcome the single molecule. And that's a quite a trick. It's not, a, it's not, you can't just casually say, oh, there's some machine in there that takes care of this. Okay. Uh, just to expand this a little bit more, we know that certainly the DNA is the case where the single molecule is always a problem. It has to be aided by molecular machines where you use energy, you expend energy in order to make sure the DNA molecules work. We'll get back to that calculation of what the odds are at random, but I should say also RNAs uh, in many systems appear to be, on average, remember this is a population average, to be close to one molecule per cell. They're produced in bursts, probably stochastic bursts of RNA, where you get transcription factors binding in, and then that burst of RNA produces an even bigger burst of proteins. But on average, it, it comes out to be a very small number because the proteins perdure. They persist through many cell divisions, while the RNAs maybe can turn over more rapidly. To get back to that question of how much variation is tolerable in biological systems. Uh, here's the very beginnings of your um, uh, statistics. Some of you may have this, hopefully, already. There will be sections where you can cover this. But here are some of the really, really useful, easy statistics. What do we want to know about a distribution? Making the fewest assumptions for now. Uh, we want to know its mean, its arithmetic average. What is the average number of chromosomes in a cell? Is there supposed to be one? How, how close to that average are they? That's the variance. Um, to get the arithmetic mean, you basically add up all the numbers and divide by, uh, divide by the number that you counted. Add up the values and, uh, 
which are ac- the axes. And then you, so here you take a weighted sum, the sigma means the sum of the x values weighted by the frequency f of x, the frequency that they occur in the sample that you take. Here r for the mean is just one, it's taking the, the first moment <coughs> uh, to get the mean. The analogous thing is now you correct all the x, the values uh, that you're measuring, these, these variables, uh, the number of chromosomes, say, and you subtract the mean. So now the mean is a, a, for this x minus uh, mu is now effectively zero. The mean is zero, and you want to ask how far from zero do, do you deviate? For chromosomes, you want that deviation to be very small. You want the, the variance to be very small. And it's just the sum of the squares. We want to take the squares uh, because if it deviates either more or less, it's still a tragedy. Um, and you want to keep, keep track of that. So these are two things. They don't make any assumption about what kind of distribution. The distribution can be anything. You can calculate the arithmetic mean and the, the um, standard deviation. Another useful uh, concept starts to make more assumptions in interpretation is now you have two variables, uh, say x and y, and you want to ask, do they co-vary? Are they related to one another? When you do an experiment, you want to ask, uh, do two different experiments, you want to ask whether they're giving similar results. If they're two completely different kinds of experiments, you might want to know whether they're reinforcing each other, you want to know whether they're redundant. Uh, If you're observing two biological facts, you don't know whether they are related to one another. It's a discovery if they covary. That's what this means. Covariance is, again, using this concept of expectation. The sum of the x's uh, corrected so that you subtract the means, their, their averages, and divide by their standard deviations, square root of the variance. So you basically end up with a mean of 0 and a variance of, of 1. And then whenever these, these normalized... Uh, when x goes up and y goes up, the product will uh, be reflected in this sum. So this is, now this has an interesting property, that when x and y are independent, unrelated, then the, then the c or the Pearson correlation coefficient is zero. However, the reverse is not true. If c is zero, it does not imply that, they, that x and y are independent. An, ex, an example, a simple example, is the curve the quadratic curve y equals x squared. Here they are completely related to one another, but, uh, but they give a correlation coefficient of zero. That's because this is a linear correlation coefficient. The model that you're testing is that they are linearly related. They are either positively correlated, which means the co- extreme, li- extreme case c will be equal one, or negatively correlated c is equal to minus one. Uh, you can plug this little formula here, handy dandy practical formula, you can plug in to calculate probabilities and it, this is a self formula, the probability that, that, that a correlation is f- far from zero. That's dependent upon the so- sample size where you sampled different x's and y's. You know, it could be uh, head size and uh, weight uh, or length and weight and so forth. If they're correlated, uh, then this probability will be significant if your sample size is large enough. So there's some very practical things and uh, now let's put these in the context of a particular class of distribution. Now, that, the, most of those did not require that we state what kind of distribution. But there's a big interesting set, which are bel- roughly bell-shaped curves. And I've rigged this so that these three wildly different types of distribution happen to give similar curves. 
And the way, and you'll see in the next couple slides how I rigged it, that basically this is a normal distribution, the Poisson distribution, and the binomial. The binomial has a limited range. N goes from 0 to 40 in this case. Uh, it has a maximum of N of 40. Uh, or, uh, <coughs> in, in, uh, the Poisson has a, has a mean, which in this case is, is 20, the normal distribution has a mean that's similar. The normal distribution can have any uh, uh, range, the standard deviation, and this is uh, uh, set here to be the, the standard deviation to be the square root of the mean of the Poisson distribution. That's how you can rig these to be similar to one another. Uh, I think time is not going to permit me to go through all these uh, in, in uh, in, in detail, but you will cover these in, in the, your statistics sections if you don't already know it. But suffice it to say that the binomial distribution is limit. X has to be an integer, uh, and the integer is limited to go, going from 0 to n. This distinguishes it from a Poisson distribution where it goes from 0 to infinity, and the, and the normal curve where it can go from negative infinity to positive infinity. Binomial and Poisson are discrete. They happen at integers while the, the Gaussians are continuous. Um, you have, you, the way you calculate this is you want to have the, the probability of an indi individual event happening has probability p. So, uh, say 0.01 in the previous slide. And then getting exactly x of those um, is p to the x power is the first approximation. But you also have to, there were actually two cases here, that hence the name binomial. If it were multiple cases, it would be multinomial. But the two cases are basically p and 1 minus p. They have to sum to 1. All these probabilities have to sum to 1. So now you have the probability that you get exactly x, and the leftovers go into 1 minus p. But then you also have to correct for the number of different ways that you could get this, the number of combinations, which is the total number of uh, possibilities choosing x at a time, and then again, the leftover is n minus x. And this is uh, n factorial over x factorial times n minus x factorial. This is the number of combinations. And so now the binomial distribution is this, and the sum of all the terms here has to add to 1. That's one of the properties of, of, of probability uh, distribution. Is all the, If you think of all the possibilities, they add up to 1. So the sum of the binomial distribution of all the x's is 1. Now, just to, just to remind you that computers are fallible, uh, here's what, when you take a fairly, uh, you know, x is equal to exactly 300, take it from a population of 700, a probability of, uh, of 1 for a unit event, the probability of getting exactly 350 from that kind of bell-shaped curve is uh, very small, but not 0. And Mathematica gets it right, and Excel guesses that it's 0. Good guess, but, you know wrong. Uh, Poisson, you can now, you now can and must go out to positive infinity, uh, and uh, there, you often will make the, the approximation that for large n and small probability in the binomial we've been talking about, n is the total number of objects you're looking at, you're choosing x from, and p is the unit probability of each of those. The mean is now approximately uh, n times p, 
And uh, the binomial and the poisson are, are very similar. That's why they look similar in that plot. Uh, and here's some practical magic you can do with the Poisson. If you have a library of cDNAs or combinatorial chemistry or genomic clones and so forth, and X is the number of hits, and you, uh, you want that to be greater than zero, so that your thesis can proceed. Uh, uh, you want the zero hit term uh, to be very small, uh, e to the minus mu. So you want the mean to be greater than one or two or maybe even t t if the mean is 10, then the probability that for a given experiment you'll have a zero hit is very small. Okay? And you can estimate this from the number of two and three, one, two, and three hits you get. You can estimate what the zero hit, and you can estimate whether it actually fits a Poisson or not. The final of this trio is the normal. Now you go from negative infinity to positive infinity, not just zero to n or zero to infinity. Um, and it's continuous, means everything takes a case. So now instead of summing up to one, you integrate up to one, because now the little delta uh, x's are infinitely small. And uh, you have a little, so now here's an exponential of a quadratic, just like the ones we were talking about earlier, except this is a negative uh, quadratic. And that gives you the nice little bell-shaped curve, and this is a, uh, the, the 2 pi sigma square root is a normalization, so it does actually integrate sum to 1. Here, another approximation sometimes applied is when p n times p times q is large, the normal is very similar to the binomial. People will abuse this and use one of these three distributions in the place of the other when it isn't appropriate, and we'll give some examples as we go. So back to this calculation. If we apply the binomial that we had in those previous slides, and I urge you to do this as an exercise, it's not on the problem set, but just do it, uh, you get uh, just getting some for any 46 chromosomes. You get the right number of chromosomes uh, is about 8%. That's not too bad, but it's still probably lethal uh, because you really want exactly the correct 46 which is 0.5 to the 46th power, which is infinitesimally unlikely to happen at random, which gets back to the point made by the audience here, is that this is not random. But you can't fight the fact that single molecules are based in stochastics, so you have to have a lot of events adding up, energy being input to, to overcome that. We have selection that's optimizing this over long periods of time. We can use random numbers that underlie this for the simulations of these stochastic events and also for permutation statistics that when you have uh, some data and you want to know whether it's significant or not you can uh, kind of do a Monte Carlo simulation of it. Here's how you code it in a couple of different languages uh, Perl, Excel, Fortran 77, Mathematica. Even though you can't evaluate it by looking at these numbers on the screen trust me there are bad random number generators. There are random number generators which are not very random. Okay. Uh, where they come from is this remainder operation operated on very special numbers. You'll have to look these up in this reference to get a full feeling for it. But these are deterministic formulas that give you random numbers. It's not really the same as flipping a coin. The computer actually will give you the same random numbers over and over again unless you do something very special. And these get, typically these give a uniform distribution between 0 and 1 which, or over some integer range, and then you can turn it into a normal distribution with this kind of trick here, where you make a transformation. There's a difference between a uniform random distribution and a, a bell-shaped one, and you can generate both of them just with this slide alone. So that's, uh, we've 
full cycle back to these three different bell curves. They have very different properties. They can be applied binomial only when you have a limited range, Poisson when you're positive infinity, normal, negative to positive, and continuous. Thank you for uh, participating in this. this. These are the topics that we covered. Uh, see you back here in a week. Please hand in your questionnaires, and uh, the section should be assigned by Thursday or Friday. Thank you. Thank you.